Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, it's fitting in some ways, my sermon, that I would be speaking on Halloween, a day when much of the world, whether innocently or purposefully, celebrate the power of darkness. Uh, some may not be also aware that today is what's traditionally called Reformation Day, and, and, and Drew did start our service by paying that recognition and uh, we're coming to Matthew 3, and Matthew 1 and 2, we've seen conflict of kingdoms, darkness, and light, and then you see John the Baptist appear in the darkness as a light anticipating the rising of the sun, and so there is a reformation call, if you will, a call to repentance that he he calls his listeners to. And so from that vantage point, I, I see its appropriateness today uh, in light of our community events. So let me uh, read the scripture. Um, I'm just doing the first six verses this morning of Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 1 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Until Jesus returns, Satan's kingdom will be at war with God's kingdom. And this is not the balancing of a yin and a yang. This is a battle, a cosmic battle that occurs between a real person, the personality of Satan, and God who has always existed. The battle lines were drawn ever since the very beginning when, when God created the angelic host, allowed them to watch the creation of the world. And in the creation of the world, the angelic host saw these these humans being created. These humans that were created were the focus of God's love and attention, and it filled some of those angelic hosts with, with jealousy and pride. One called Lucifer turned his back on his creator and rebelled and led a host of demons with him, angelic angels who had turned evil and walked away from their creator. And so there's been this battle that's been ongoing, and God in the very beginning proclaimed that one day the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, while at the same time the serpent would bruise the heel of this offspring. A cryptic anticipation of this battle and a future uh, conflict that would occur 
And where we're beginning to come to that conflict, John the Baptist is anticipating the arrival of this one who is coming that was long prescribed and, excuse me, prophesied. Matthew 1 and 2, we've seen some of this conflict unravel. We've seen it, uh, excuse me, develop rather. In chapter 1, we saw um, generation after generation coming in the line of the Messiah, the one who was going to defeat Satan. And we see in chapter 2, we see that some of that initial conflict, the little babe is born in the manger, and then you have the, the forces of Satan attempting to destroy this little one. And now we come to chapter 3, and in chapter 3 we meet John the Baptist, who's bringing a message like a light in the darkness, and we've seen darkness in chapter 2. Preparing for the rising of the sun. We're going to look at this few verses, and I want us to ask a couple of questions about this paragraph. And the first question I want us to ask is, who, who was John? Now, in verse 1, Matthew uh, kind of just pops him, just drops him down, like parachutes him in to the storyline. Like, no, no real introduction. There's almost an assumption that you know who this John is. And in verse 1, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In verse 2, we get a little glimpse of that message. Let's skip over that for a moment and continue asking about who John is. Verse 3, he gives some description. He says, well, this is the one that Isaiah talked about, anticipating uh, the pathway and preparing the pathway of the Lord. And there's a focus on this powerful voice. The voice of one in verse 3 says, it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That word cry literally means to shout with an unusual sound and volume. Crying out, like howling, howling, like in a disturbing tone of voice that unsettles people. He's crying out. As, uh, as I was meditating on this, I was reminded of an experience that's somewhat nostalgic for me. As a boy, I remember hearing the foghorn at my grandpa's house. Has, has anyone ever heard a foghorn before? Yeah? It's, it's piercing. And when I was laying in bed listening to the foghorn, I thought it was next door. It was so loud. But it was across the cove, and it was probably with, you know, a mile away. But it was like right there. And I think that's an apt description of how John's booming voice disturbed and brought awareness and attention. It was so piercing. One analogy that some people have used is he was kind of like a coyote, crying in the wilderness, howling, and drawing attention. Now, Matthew says this is the one who is anticipating, the one Isaiah said is preparing the way of the Lord. He's, he's like removing, it says, you know, make his path straight. He's like the Department of Transportation, if you will, filling in the potholes, 
through the valleys. He's putting large fill in so that the pathway is straight. I know that analogy just broke down because I said the Department of Transportation is fixing roads. I know. But this is the model and direction of John the Baptist. He's, it's really interesting the physical description that's given here in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 4. Uh, a, it's almost like a Halloween costume description. I wonder if there would be any of these out and about, you know, with a little jar of honey, bag of locusts. I don't know. My imagination can run wild. But he was intentionally dressing in a way that would cause attention, and these are familiar characteristics of the traditional prophet. John knew who he was. He knew his calling, and he dressed for the occasion because his message was so important, he didn't want anyone to mistake who was coming after him. It was the Lord of glory who's coming. And I was also reflecting upon the urgency of this message and just the significance. He, he, it was a, an Im, impelling message in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's an urgency to this message. And there have been times in the history of the church where God has blessed and provided a prophet, if you will, who commanded the attention of society and had a message similar to that of John of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My mind went to a man named Charles Spurgeon who went into London in the 1850s. He went into a culture, a Christian Victorian culture that was very, very relaxed. They didn't really care for enthusiastic preaching. They, they, they had a kind of a sedate mindset, that like they had arrived and there was really nothing left to do. This was, this is the millennial kingdom, if you will. And Spurgeon came in and he rubbed the establishment the wrong way. As he preached, he preached that one could not come to Christ unless they are born again. You could grow up in the Christian culture and he communicated that that's not enough. You have to have the Holy Spirit regenerate your heart, and yet you're so sinful, you need to plead with God for that to happen. Don't just assume that this is something that you can muster on your own. You need the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate your heart. We need more Spurgeons today. We need more people who will admit the depravity of the human heart, and command yet the duty to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need people to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, let's examine his message. That's the second question this morning. What's, what was his message? His message seems simple enough. It seems simple enough. Satan has always been trying to paper over this message. Satan uses theological error to distort the truth of the gospel. It's a simple message, yes, but it's so easily distorted. 
We need to plant these truths deep in our heart. Notice what he says. He says you need to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, means that God's judgment upon the world is coming. John was saying, if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from the direction you're going in, you will experience the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. You will experience the wrath of God in such a way you won't live to tell of it. Satan has been downplaying this message for centuries. And I want to break this message down into three parts this morning. I want us to see, first, the call for repentance. What does this mean? And there has been confusion. There's been lots of darkness through the centuries as to what this word means. And it's appropriate that I'm speaking about this on Reformation Sunday to a degree. Because the first copies of the New Testament were written in Greek, there was a fundamental understanding of what the word repent meant. And I don't believe maliciously on his part, but it was used by Satan, I believe. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin in the 4th century. And he used words that were inadequate to represent the concept of repentance that was implicitly and accurately described. And for centuries, the priesthood misrepresented the message of repentance. The Greek word, metanoeo, is a word that talks about the change of one's life as a result of a complete change of internal perspective and awareness. So it's like a person who, okay, you, you've, you've driven by that stop sign all your life and you never didn't even know it was there. And then all of a sudden, you're aware that there's a stop sign and you start to change your behavior based upon your new internal awareness of the stop sign. This turn of way of life has changed because internally you know something now you've never seen before. Yet the priesthood used the word that Jerome gave us, which is poen etentium, which means do penance. Some of you have grown up in a Catholic background and you would recognize that doing penance means essentially... Do things in place of the debt that you have created. Doing penance is an unfortunate change of words. And through the centuries, priests would say, well, you've not committed a, a mortal sin, you've created a venial sin, so therefore, just do some penance, penance excuse me, and it will be okay. I'm going to prescribe for you ten Hail Marys, for example. Doing penance is not repentance. Repentance is an internal change that changes the whole outlook and direction of your life. And you can see how something very small has created so much darkness through the centuries, and when Luther came upon some of these principles, he realized, wow, 
we have not had the gospel and truth for centuries. And so there was a reclaim of the gospel. It's important that it's such a departure from the truth. And I I bring up Titus 3, 5 because what this communicates here is that this is a work of God and being aware of the work of God is what repentance is. Is that He saved us. Not because of works righteousness. But according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is what repentance looks like. That awareness that you have been washed. You've been washed by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and now that begins to change how you live your life. He saved us. We don't save ourselves by doing penance. Significant difference. You know, this idea of repentance and salvation, we often as Christians will say, well, you know, I did that. I did that when I was first introduced to the gospel, and I, or I heard it, and then I prayed, and I asked Jesus to save me. And that's true, but that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not the whole sum of the change of life. You don't know all the sins in your soul when you first discover Christ as the only truth. He saved us, but there is ongoing purging and need for turning, even in the midst of the general change that you've made. So, did you stop sinning when you became a Christian? No, you didn't. But repentance is the orientation of your life. And when you discover and the Holy Spirit presses upon your heart the awareness that you still have sin that you need to deal with, you change your view of that again. You say, well, no, I I can't keep doing that. It's like that stop sign that I never saw before. I've got to now start living this way. I've got to start coming to a complete stop and not a rolling stop. Who does that? Anyway. But I think it's important for us to realize that in the process of the Holy Spirit working within our hearts and lives, there are some people who are like Rip Van Winkle, Washington Irving, Irving Cliff. He told the story of a guy who who was alive before the Revolutionary War, and he went out with his dog to the Catskills, and he started, he was going hunting, and he fell asleep under the magical, the magical hills of the Catskills, and he laid down, he slept I don't know how many years it was, but he woke up and it was after the revolution. And he comes down the hill and he's starting to t- start t- still talking about King George and people would think you're crazy. The guy's lost his mind. Everything has changed. And in that moment, he suddenly realizes that his whole world has changed. And I believe that's a good illustration in some ways of how it is when people become born again and they repent and they turn It's like they've been asleep for years. And then all of a sudden, there's such a change that the world and how it doesn't make sense the way I had been living. It doesn't make sense. And you have a new perspective. This is the kind of repentance that John is talking about. He's saying, you've been living your life this way as a Jew. The Jewish teachers have been teaching you this but it only creates your own sense of self-righteousness. Turn to God. 
You can't save yourself. You need to be born again. John's saying, you've got to do this because the kingdom and judgment is at hand. It's coming. And that brings us to that second point of his message. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. It's kind of like the reason why for repentance. Change your view. John's something like Paul Revere. Remember Paul Revere? The British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. It couldn't, you couldn't escape that message. But when the kingdom comes and judgment comes, Jesus will divide the sheep from the goats. Those who have an open profession of faith but not the real regeneration of the heart will be exposed as goats. And they will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The next paragraph that I won't preach this morning, although I'm tempted to preach it this morning, is a hard paragraph. It actually helps us see the doctrine of eternal punishment clearer and clearly. While I was in the hospital, I... When you're in the hospital, you have time to think, right? If, you, if you're conscious and you're, you're with it. But I had some time to think. And when I started feeling well enough that I could actually read again, I started reading some theology and I realized, you know what? Our generation has no clue what hell even is. There were past generations that understood hell so well. It captured their imagination so that they could appreciate heaven more. Eternal punishment is real. It is real. And it is coming. And everyone who suppresses this truth and also suppresses the truth of the gospel which provides the way of escape, all who suppress this truth in their own self-righteousness and then in reality is unrighteousness, will find themselves in eternal punishment. John is dead serious because he believes and he understands eternal punishment. Satan doesn't want us to understand it, doesn't want us to even think about it, doesn't want us to imagine it. He wants us to downplay it. And consequently, he doesn't want us to confess our sins. Notice, notice that at the end, there is an implied part of John's message at the end of verse 6. It says, and they were baptizing, excuse me, they were baptized by him. And I'll explain baptism later next week. But they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I say this is an implied part of John's message because it's the outcome of a repentant and a repentant move within one's heart. It literally means here in the end of verse 6, confessing our sins. It literally means to admit our sins. To say them out loud. Not to just keep them hidden, but to put them out there, to expose them, 
to the, all the humiliation that's required to get rid of them. The Greek word for confession means to agree with or to admit. And so, God himself has a view of your sin. Are you willing now to admit that his view is correct? Well, that's what a repentant, a repentance is. It's coming to terms with your sin and saying, this is how God sees me, and I agree with how God sees me. Scripture says in Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will, will obtain mercy. What a blessing that is. That in spite of the fact that sin is in eternally offensive to God, he provides mercy to people who admit what he already sees in you. That's a beautiful thing. That's gospel hope. And that's the essence of why these people were confessing their sins is because they believed that they would be forgiven of their sins. In 1 John 1, 9, we read this, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins to God, I don't know if you realize this, but there is often an unfinished part of the process. There is often something that we fail to do, and that is to confess our faults one to another. I want us to think about James 5, 16 for a minute. James, who... who was a disciple of Jesus, and, or brother of Jesus, so a late-coming disciple of Jesus. It says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, James is speaking in a context of illness, of people being sick. People being sick and possibly as a result of their illness, or excuse me, of their sinfulness, that the illness may have come from their sinful choices. And I bring this to her attention because God does chasten, He disciplines those He loves. He brings illness at times to catch our attention. You know, when you're sick, you do have time to think, don't you? As I said, we have time to think. And in our time of illness, we ought not waste it because we can become more aware of the things within us that do not please God at all. Last Sunday, I, or the Sunday before, two Sundays ago, I, I confessed to you some sin that, that I had in my heart of pride. I, I said, well, you know, I'm, I wasn't, I was too proud to call up Jeremy and say, can you cover the sermon for tomorrow? I hadn't had a sick day, in, sick day in the pulpit for like 10 years, and I wasn't about to now, you know. But that was pride. I worked, that was working through in my heart with God. I confessed my sin to God, but I also needed to tell you. 
I needed to tell you. There are times when God does not bless his congregation because we were unwilling to confess our faults one to another and to be healed. How is this healing? Because now I'm on the ropes. Like I'm, a, I'm, I'm like, I'm out there now, right? I've exposed my pride to you for this particular way of decision-making. Now I'm also accountable to keep my word. So, Jeremy, you better have a sermon ready. So, it, it, we just, we need to, we need to have that kind of frank honesty with one another. I know it's embarrassing to tell others what you have done and what, what is wrong. And I'm not saying you have to get up, like, on a Sunday morning and tell the whole congregation. You might, you just might need to have someone nearby that you can, you can tell. I know that the Catholic tradition has destroyed this concept for many of us, that we think that all we need to do is just confess our sins to God, and there's a truth. We don't need the forgiveness of others. We can get that directly from God. But we miss the humanity of communicating with one another and finding healing with one another. If we avoid and we bury and we hide, we destroy our souls. The cross of Christ calls us to destroy all pride. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Our sins were placed on that cross for public shame. And when we put our sins on the cross of public shame, and it's out there, there's a humbling process that takes place. And we desperately need that so that we might be healed by God's grace. Now, I said there's not always a need for a public confession given the nature of, of whatever has transpired. But the reality is, is we need to find people that we love and trust who also care for us and we communicate our faults. And I, I, I the confessing of sin was at the Jordan River. It was done in a public setting. And so we need to take that seriously. And I've left here at the end of the message kind of like the summation of what we've worked through and the idea that I believe that Matthew is trying to communicate to us. That true Christians continue to repent and confess their sins and believe that judgment is coming upon the world. This is not just the door that brings you into relationship. Repentance is not just like your ticket to get on the train. Repentance is now a way of life. And we continue to confess our sins and do the work of exposing those sins and finding healing in Christ. I find it highly ironic that today I'm preaching this message on, on Halloween, but it's also Reformation Day. And, you know, Halloween has become, I, I, statistically what I've heard, it's like the, the second most uh, mercantile day in our, in, our, in our year after Christmas in terms of like people spending money and stuff. It's almost hard to believe. But it's also ironic because Reformation Day was the celebration of truth and recovery of light and 
And our society is trying to downplay the light and trying to fill up the world with darkness. As we see our world shifting towards darkness, we shouldn't grow weary in well-doing. I know it can become so weighty on all of our minds, all the things that we see going on. But I want us to close with these words that I find in Daniel chapter 12 because they're so applicable to us to fill us with encouragement. As Christians who are doing the work of continually repenting and, and confessing our sins and believing that judgment day is coming, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see these words. Oh boy. At that time shall Michael arise, the great prince who is in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, every one whose name shall be found in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's talking about eternal punishment. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like, what's those last words? Is it off the page? No. Like the stars, like the brightness of the sky and the stars above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What's, what's beautiful about that is that even as the darkness increases, your little light will continue to shine and will get brighter and brighter and brighter. I leave you with that encouragement. The work of daily repentance of sin is not wasted time. It's fuel for the light to shine in a dark world. Let's pray.